Hello and welcome to the No Longer Be Children podcast. I am your host, Josiah Meyer, and we are in pursuit of a mature and stable Christian worldview. And, uh, <clears throat> haven't been podcasting much. I had an unexpectedly busy summer, but, um, I'm heading out for a bit of vacation now, and, uh, that might mean that I have a bit of time for things I like doing, such as podcasting, so we'll see how this goes. And on the drive, I was listening to Jordan Peterson, 12 Rules for Life. Uh, the first couple chapters really made a big difference when I read them last summer. Uh, helped me get my my acting gear and lose some weight and think differently about my life. and Really helpful. Um, and I'm slowly working, my, and I've listened to a lot of his podcasts since, and um, kind of feel like I'm learning a lot about psychology and some about history and a lot about mythology, rethinking some things I learned back in high school about archetypes in uh, literature, and um, and even how typology and archetype function in scriptures. And so I might have podcasts on that at some point. Um, and I'm really I'm I'm finding myself quoting Jordan Peterson a lot. Uh, when I talk to my wife, I have a hard time not saying, "Oh yeah, that's like what Jordan Peterson said in a podcast somewhere." Uh, and I've been quoting him in sermons a fair bit too, which I don't mind doing because I know people in the audience are, are reading him and I know that he's uh number one top selling author and I like to quote people that are current. I don't quote him. I don't think I quote him as an authority in my sermons. I don't think I have yet. I could, but I don't think I have. I've used him more as this is what people are saying. Um, and you know, here's the question. You, I like to use popular authors to say, "Here's the question," and then use scriptures to answer the question. And I've used them for that. But I was pretty disappointed in some things I I read in Twelve Rules for Life yesterday. And uh, a principle that Bruxy Cavey taught me is that um, when you you know you're listening to somebody, you don't know. Like, they're the expert, and you have, you know nothing about their field. You know, you just listen to them, usually. And you just accept it. But when they wander into your field, and they make a fool of yourselves, of themselves, then you kind of need to question whether they really knew what they were talking about in their field. And I'm kind of feeling like that with Peterson, although I have a hard time believing that he doesn't know what he's talking about in his field, because he's well-established and... You know, he writes in peer-reviewed journals, which is the way that academics keep track of themselves. But he really kind of made a fool of himself when it comes to biblical studies. Um, at least that's how it sounds in three different quotes. Um, and the quotes are... I don't download them. I took the time to get them off of Kindle for you, just because I love you so much here. Um, if I can open them all right so he's talking about jesus and um how jesus got his life in order so we ought to have our lives in order and i mentioned this in the previous podcast that he's he's approaching scriptures as um what i would call a liberal um he's a nice liberal he's a liberal that's positive towards christianity which is a change you know positive towards fundamentalist christianity or, or conservative christianity or whatever you want to call it biblical christianity he likes Christians. Most liberals don't like real Christians uh, that actually believe in miracles and such. 
Um, but he is approaching it as a humanist, as somebody that um, basically doesn't believe that any, any of this stuff happened. Um, and so he looks at Jesus as an example. But then at a certain point, he says, well, maybe Jesus isn't the great example because um, it's, okay, where's the quote here? I had it and disappeared. Because he's too perfect. Maybe he's too perfect to use as an example. And then he says, but we have other examples, some much less mythologized and archetypal. Consider, for example, the case of Socrates, the ancient Greek philosopher. So he says two things. Well, three things. He says that the story of Christ is mythologized. It just makes me shudder. Um, archetypal. Now, archetypal is an interesting question that I, I want to have a podcast on soon. Um, you know, I, I wouldn't fully deny that he's an archetype. Um, and then he says that Socrates is not a mythologized story, which, okay, we'll get to this. Um Okay, so that's one quote, that we have other examples that are far less mythologized and archetypal. Consider, for example, Socrates. Um, second quote here. He quotes from the Gospel of Thomas, and he says, It is for this reason that Christ said in the Gospel of Thomas, The kingdom of the Father is spread out upon the earth, but men do not see it. So that is a legitimate quote from a legitimate work uh, called the Gospel of Thomas. But he puts these words in the mouth of Christ. Um, so, you know, we'll talk about this in a second, but spoiler alert, nobody, not even the most radical Jesus scholar thinks that the words of the gospel of Thomas are said by Jesus. There is no reputable scholar that thinks that the gospel of Thomas is what Jesus actually said. Uh, so we'll get to that in a second, but they'll, they'll say, you know, it's clearly a second century document um, and perhaps it was written by a community of people that exists in the first century, but nobody believes that Jesus said that and that, that the Gospel of Thomas is any addition to what, into the information that we have about what Jesus actually thought or said. And he talks a lot about Horus, the Greek god, the Egyptian god Horus, which is fine, you know, it's a symbol, it's an archetype. We're going to talk about archetypes in a second. But he says at one point, in the great and fundamental myths, myths of ancient Egypt, the god Horus, often regarded as a precursor to Christ, historically and conceptually speaking, experienced the same thing when he confronts his evil uncle Set. And he makes a big deal about um, the fact or the idea that Set, S-E-T, turned into Satan uh, throughout the course of history, uh, which is something I don't know about. I haven't looked into that, but... Um, the idea that Horus is regarded as the precursor to Christ, historically and conceptually speaking, I have looked into. Um, and so, oh my goodness, um, it's kind of hard to know where to start. Um, but let's let's start by saying that there is a popular conception out there, and. It basically seems to center around the Da Vinci Code. And like Christian people, like I bring up the Da Vinci Code fairly often and Christian people are like, wasn't that like published back in 2005 or something? And like Christians got all worked up about it and published a few books and like now it's gone. It's like, no, it's not gone. It's not gone. 
It's still something like the fifth most published book in the world. It's still in like every dominant language. It's still every Easter it comes up on Netflix and the new generation of people are like, oh, what does Christianity think? Oh, what's the true message of Christianity? And it still comes up in my university. You know, students say, oh, but but we can't trust the Bible. It was all collected at the Council of Nicaea, a bunch of people got together and picked between the 50 Gospels or so that existed and, and selected the ones that propped up the divinity of Christ. And um, that's when Jesus became Christ, uh, is that the Council of Nicaea, 335 or whatever, 325 years after Christ or whatever. Um, yeah, the Da Vinci Code, it's been debunked so much. You know, there, there's nobody... Okay, let me say this. I'm I'm kind of... There's so much crap here that it's hard to shovel it. Um, it's hard to know where to start shoveling. Um, so let let me say this. Um, point A, there are serious people that study Jesus. The historical person of Jesus. Point B, there are Christians that study the historical people, person of Jesus. Okay, These two groups usually don't agree. And I would be part of the group of people that study the historical Jesus. And I would study it through the scriptures and saying, what do scriptures say? I would also want to be aware of what the first group says and say, okay, what do the non-Christians say Jesus did or said? And what is the facts about Jesus that, you know, if I went to Yale or Harvard or any secular school, I would hear. And I've actually taken online classes from them for free from iTunes U and listen to what they say. And they say nothing like what is in the Da Vinci Code. Nothing like that. They laugh at it. They say this is nonsense. Because the things from the Da Vinci Code are almost 100 years out of date. It it was serious um, historical research 100 years ago. But these things have been completely debunked. So, yeah. So the the basic idea of the Da Vinci Code is that uh, the Catholic Church has been holding us down and suppressing truth and suppressing knowledge which you know uh that's that would be a great theory for the middle ages but nowadays the catholic church does not control anything in academia as far as i can see uh they may have a few documents hidden in the the vatican that they haven't revealed to the world which could be interesting uh but uh, i kind of doubt that they've already revealed um most of those anyways um, but the Catholic Church is hiding stuff from us, uh, and they're controlling academia, and they're controlling the world, and and they're behind everything. And and um, but uh, there's this secret that's getting out about uh, how um, Jesus really lived a normal life. He wasn't really didn't really die on the cross. He got married to Mary Magdalene. He had children, and the children of Jesus really run the church and run the world. And um, theologically uh, or religiously this secret is hidden in the gnostic gospels and um and the gnostic gospels are really pagan uh, at least some of them have pagan roots and um and that's why um in the da vinci uh, painting of the last supper there's a v uh between jesus and, Je- and john the baptist and this symbolizes uh well the vagina of Mary Magdalene, which is the Holy Grail, the Holy Chalice, the symbol of life for paganism, uh, I guess. And um, 
really all this has been suppressed at the Council of Nicaea. At the Council of Nicaea, supposedly, uh, you know, it was a real council presided over by um, Constantine when uh, they hammered out the Nicene Creed. Um, and supposedly at this at this um, council, they had around 50 Gospels uh, to select from, and uh, they picked out the ones that they liked the best, and uh, the ones that propped up the divinity of Christ. And, um, you know, from that point on, <clears throat> Christianity's been Trinitarian and has suppressed paganism. And has only had the four Gospels, and, you know, they buried... Well, he says even that the Christians started wars against the pagans, you know, which is just a complete fiction. Um, you know, a, the Christians were persecuted horribly, terribly, for the first 300 years. Um, there were no wars. It was a persecution. Um, anyways, again, so much poop, so little time. Uh, but that's kind of the, the basic story of the Da Vinci Code. And, yeah, and then also there's this strong idea of evolution, that these ideas grew and evolved over time. There was never a definitive version of the Bible. It just, you know, was kind of a growing, evolving thing until, I guess, around the Council of Nicaea, they said, well, this is what we're going to have, and they picked something out of apparently all these options. Okay, so that's a bunch of nonsense. Uh, and uh, if you listen to uh, Apologetics... I've got a, a series on, of apologetics. Uh, I think it's 9 and 10 or 10 and 11. I did it back in 2016. And I really looked in detail at um, at the Da Vinci Code and did about, well, two 90-minute lectures on it. Um, seems like I'd give it more time than I ought to. But again, it's it's this is out there and this is what people believe. So in brief, um, what the truth is... And I'm going to talk about the research first because the research is the appropriate place to start. Um, the truth is that uh, G both Jesus studies and archaeology are very young. Um, there's some research, such as philosophy, which are very, very old, you know, 2,500 years. Archaeology started uh, in one of the, the Slavic countries around somewhere in the 18... 40s or 50s or something like it's it's less than 200 years old archaeology um as a disciplined science and also as um like as the practice of it people digging around in the dirt and looking for stuff and also as people under figuring out rules for how to dig around in the dirt so archaeology is a very very recent science uh we've only been coming up with new stuff from archaeology basically for the last century when our methods have gotten better also, Jesus studies is very, very recent as a secular study because for most of history, it was a Christian study, people just looking at the Bible and reading it. Um, for the last uh, 150 years or so, uh, people have looked at the Bible and looked at history and looked at the archaeology and uh, looked at the writings of other people from history and said, let's try, and then also used uh, ideas that they had um, you know, from philosophy or from humanism or from whatever, uh, and said, well, this is what, you know, based on, on the picture I have of what was happening at the time and based on the picture I have of who Jesus was as a human person, this is who I think Jesus, the historical Jesus actually was. And so this is historical Jesus studies is that 
you know, it's it's people making educated guesses about who Jesus was, um, the historical person living at the time of Palestine, or at the you know at from zero up to thirty or thirty three A.D. Or is it thirty six? I keep forgetting. Anyways, um, so the first they talk about three um, three waves or three three quests. There were three quests for the historical Jesus. The first one was in the late 1800s in Germany, ended around 1920 or 1930 in Germany. So it was dominated by um, German scholars, and this was kind of the the time of classical liberalism in Germany. I've got some podcasts on that, on classical liberalism, Um, modernity and the roots of classical liberalism. You can go listen to that. Uh, and it was kind of the wild west of German or of of Jesus studies. Uh, there were some really not serious Jesus scholars that were just making up stuff, um, but it was you know I guess in a way important uh, to have some creativity. I mean, important to the movement, I guess, uh, to just throw out some quite crazy wild ideas. And um, you know, there were others that were more serious that were looking at. You know what they knew about history at the time, what what archaeology was, what information archaeology was feeding them at the time, which wasn't much, but it was different uh, than the picture. It, it was bigger, it was and somewhat different than uh, what they had thought from only scriptures and their own um, their own experience of uh, of European culture. They were getting, you know, archaeology was giving them a picture of the Middle East and the ancient world. There were a lot of people that denied that Jesus even existed. Uh, and, um, you know, there, there were a lot of different ideas floated around towards the end of this time, forget his name, but you can go listen to the podcasts on that, uh, on the, uh, apologetics ones. Somebody wrote a book on the G- historic quest for the historical Jesus. He coined the phrase and also he summarized everybody that came before him and said, look guys, we're all just looking into a deep, deep well. And at the bottom of the well, we see a face. And the more we stare at it, the more we think we know what the face is. And really, this face is just ourselves. Actually, that might have been somebody else that, that used that illustration. But it, it really is a great illustration of historical Jesus studies. Because every historical Jesus scholar, their version of Jesus ends up looking like themselves. Uh, even to this day, it seems. Uh, I think it's a very piercing quote or, or analogy. But, okay, so the first quest for the historical Jesus kind of ended. The second quest started up again in the 40s or 50s. I forget exactly. Again, you can go back and look, listen to the podcast. Um, but somebody came up with, he said, look, these are real documents, the, uh, the four Gospels. And we can use criteria for figuring out what's behind them. If these are human authors, they're writing about somebody. There's some criteria that they're gonna that we can use to find the person behind them, which makes sense. Uh, it's not just it's not just random. Uh, there should be some pattern. And the main criteria was the criteria of embarrassment. That if something if they wrote something down that was embarrassing to them, well, it must have happened, or it more likely happened. Because why would they make something up that would be embarrassing? We can get why G- why they might make something up like Jesus being transfigured on the mountaintop. But we can't figure out why Jesus would, why the later disciples would make up something like um, Jesus being baptized by John, going into a position of submission and humility over under another religious figure that had disciples that continued on to the second century, 
we wouldn't. Why would that? Why would we want that? Why would we make that up? And why would we make up a uh, woman at the tomb? We would make up men at the tomb. You wouldn't make up women at the tomb. So if something's embarrassing, it likely happened. And so these second, the second quest for the historical Jesus went through the Gospels more scientifically and said, okay, what things can we actually absolutely know? And there were other criteria as well. Um, similarity, um, the... Uh, they felt like they could detect the Aramaic language behind certain sayings of Jesus, although that one was somewhat questioned. Anyways, there were other criteria um, that they were able to use to establish certain pinpoints of accuracy in the Gospels. Now, it's important to note that the, it was their quest was positive. Like it was, they would tend to reject everything that they couldn't establish, but that was because of their you know, their bias or whatever. They didn't have any proof for that. They just said, these things we know for sure. Jesus was definitely a teacher of some sort. Uh, he was definitely healer of some sort. He he definitely, you know, what was a Jew living at that time. Uh, he was definitely buried or uh, baptized by um, John in the Jordan River. He was definitely crucified on a cross. Um, there's certain basic things about his life that absolutely certainly happened. And the rest of it, you know, the miracles and stuff, they would deny, they would doubt and stuff. Um, but certain things they would absolutely say absolutely must have happened. And then there's a third quest for the historical Jesus. And the main difference is that they've added a few more criteria. They've questioned a few of the old criteria. And now it's a global quest. Uh, before it was in Germany especially, and now it's a global quest. So the upshot of all this is there is a serious body and a hardcore of facts about Jesus as a historical figure. That if you go to university or seminary, it is not Christians teaching. You will not be taught to believe, you know, in Jesus as God. Um, you will not be taught that. Um, I mean, it, I have a few students right now that are in this in these studies, and they are actually be, they are absolutely being shaken to their core with of their faith. And I would tell anybody. Don't go to a secular university and take Jesus studies because it will shake you in your faith. You need to get a degree in apologetics first and then you can go study study the historical Jesus because these are non-Christian people looking at our religion as non-Christians and trying to take it apart uh, as non-Christians in accordance with, with secularism, with, with atheism. So, um, you know, you're, you're not... This is not good for the faith. But... These people don't believe the Da Vinci Code. This is what I'm trying to say. There is a serious debate between academia today and Christianity. And people like William Lane Craig, uh, people like Frank Turek, people like um, Ravi Zacharias are in that debate and they know the literature. And they take it to the leaders of the debate, especially William Lane Craig. And he hashes it out with them. And if you listen to his debates, you know, he debates with Bert Ehrman. And he debates with other major scholars that believe different things about Jesus and have researched him and have researched the, the facts. There is no way that debates Dan Brown. Because Dan Brown is an idiot that wrote garbage. And was only aware, not even of the research of the first uh, quest for the historical Jesus, but he was aware of... Um, of conspiracy theory literature 
that was swirling around the first quest for the historical Jesus and wasn't aware of, uh, you know, the critique of that um, first movement that kind of ended it. Uh, and so, you know, he has these crazy ideas like there's 50 or 60 different gospels and they're all basically equal or that Jesus was basically, um, you know, an evolution from, from paganism and things like this, which were floating around in the first quest, but is absolutely nonsense. And so if Jordan Peterson believes this, and if his beliefs line up with the Da Vinci Code or something similar, then I gotta say, uh, you get an F. You get worse than an F. Like you get laughably, you have failed Jesus studies. Like if he had said something like, um, we don't actually know much about the historical Jesus. You know, that's something that people say because they only accept the data points. You know, the, the, the there's maybe like eight points of information, but especially like four, that Jesus was born, he was a teacher, um, he was um, a Messiah teacher, called himself Messiah. He... Uh, was baptized by John in the Jordan River and he died in Jerusalem and he had followers after him. Like those are kind of the, the main data points that everybody agrees on. So he, and some people are minimalists and they say that's all that we can know about him. So he, uh, one legitimate thing to say, you know, based on contemporary Jesus studies as a real academic, because Peterson sets himself up to be a real academic, he could say, well, we don't actually know much about the historical Jesus. But, the things that he actually said, that Peterson actually says about Jesus is very weak. Um, okay, so which one are... I'm going to pause this and collect my thoughts here. All right, so the first thing, let's let's get this out of the way. He quotes from the, the Gospel of Thomas as though Jesus is speaking, as though the Gospel of Thomas represents the, the thoughts and ideas and the actual words of Jesus. And this is... Um, this is nobody believes this. Nobody believes this. So, the Gospel of Thomas, um, here's, how, here's how it happened. Um, I talk about historically or how it was researched. I'm going to talk about historically what actually happened because we're fairly sure what happened. Uh, there's not a whole lot of debate about what happened. What happened is Jesus lived from around 5 B.C., before Christ up to around 30 or I believe it's 36. Like there's two dates that we can't decide which one uh, based on the information. It was either, he either died in AD 30 or AD 33 or it's AD 36. I can't remember if it's 36 or 33. Anyways, somewhere around AD 30. We'll just pick AD 30 for, for reference right now because I'm going off the top of my head. Jesus died on the Roman cross. Everybody agrees on this. And then um, the New Testament started being written. And Paul was the first one to write. So the, the book of James, um, we don't really know when that was written. It's possible that was written before the books of Paul, but it doesn't contain really important theology, so we don't talk about it a whole lot. But Paul writes first. And some of the first things that he writes are actually sources. So in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, I deliver to you as a first of importance what I also received. And he talks about how Jesus was crucified and on the third day he rose again and he appeared to Peter or to Cephas and then to the 12 and then to more than 400 people or something at one time. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15. So he, he mentions that he received this. Uh, and so 1 Corinthians is written something like 
15 years after the death of Christ. But he says he received this, this, this little packet of information that he puts into 1 Corinthians 15. And so we ask, when did he receive it? In the, gospel, in, uh, the book of Galatians, it mentions that he met with um, Peter and John, or Peter and, and, and the other disciples at, um, at Jerusalem. And we date that to around seven years after the death of Christ, so around AD 40. So it's likely that Paul received this at around AD 40 from the actual disciples, that Jesus died, that he rose again on the third day, and that uh, he appeared to the disciples. So 1 Corinthians 15 is dated within around seven years, perhaps up to around 14 years, which is when 1 Corinthians was written. Not a lot of debate on that when it was written. Um, Galatians was likely uh, Paul's first book. And that one was written, I think, around... Uh, I don't have the dates in front of me. You can Wikipedia them. They're not disputed, really. Uh, you know, it, people slide them around 10 years here and there. Uh, but Paul wrote very, very early, you know, within the, the 20 to 30 years after Christ. Mostly within 20 years after Christ. Or less than that, I mean. Like 15 up to 25 years after Christ. So Paul wrote Galatians with tons of... You know, Jesus is God. Jesus is the only way to God, the only way to salvation. If you don't believe that Jesus is the way to salvation, um, you're damned. Uh, we do not get to heaven by good works. We get to heaven through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Okay, and then after Paul comes the Gospel of Mark, uh, which the whole Gospel of Mark is about how Jesus is the Son of God. Uh, that's, that is the purpose. That is the message of the Gospel of Mark. That is what... It, Mark builds and builds and builds and builds up and 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 Jesus is revealing more and more about what the Son of Man is. And the Son of Man, I've got a sermon on this in my sermons podcast. Um, but in saying, I am the Son of Man, Jesus was keeping them in suspense because it was unclear what he meant. In the book of Daniel, the Son of Man is somebody that appears before God and is given the dominion and worship of all nations. So he's basically treated as God. And he was considered to be a missiological figure. And so he called himself the son of God. But also, um, the prophet Ezekiel was called by God, son of man. And so it's like, is he just calling himself a normal prophet like Ezekiel? Or is he calling himself the son of man, who is this, this other figure in heaven that will be given the dominion of the earth? And at the end of his ministry... Jesus said, um, I am the Son of Man, and you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. Direct quote from Daniel, directly saying, I am that guy. I am God, before God, who will be given the, the rule of, of earth. And they said, what need do we have of any further testimony? Um, you've heard the blasphemy. And that's why he was crucified, because he said he was the guy from Daniel. So the book of Mark very clearly says Jesus claimed to be God. That's why he got killed. Then Matthew fills in the details. Matthew comes next at around uh, 80, 70, or 80, 80. So around 40 to 50 years after Christ. Um, and uh, Eusebius says the reason that Matthew wrote that at that time, uh, perhaps he wrote in Aramaic first and it was translated into Greek. Um, that's what the story was, although there's no evidence of the Aramaic text. Uh, but Matthew was was aging, and um, so they encouraged him to write down a copy. Um, 
the, the, the tradition around the gospel of Mark, why it's called Mark instead of Peter, is that Mark was uh, somebody that traveled around with Peter. The, disciple, the Christians asked him to write down what Peter kept preaching. <clears throat> and so Mark wrote down what, what Peter was preaching, but not in order, is uh, the commentary from one of the church fathers. And so it's just kind of this rough and ready kind of a, a collection of Peter's sayings. And then Matthew was a tax collector, more of an educated man. Uh, and uh, he was a Jew. So he wrote to Jews and he had more information. It was more collected, more thought through. He likely had access to the Gospel of Mark and kind of filled in the details. The Gospel of Luke was written just a tiny bit after the Gospel of Matthew at around 70 and he had access to Mark and Matthew, uh, and he was the traveling companion of Paul. So it's actually possible and very likely that actually all this happened much sooner, and that actually um, the Gospel of Luke was written during the lifetime of Paul, which would have put it at uh, Jesus. Uh, Paul died at, in 63, so it would have crunched that before that, and, all, and everything else was written before this. But I'm trying to give you the kind of, like, let's not argue, let's just go with, the, the most um, most agreed upon dates, which would put um, the Gospel of, of Luke later on, around 70. And then the Gospel of John is written around 90, 80, towards the end of the century, as John was reaching the end of his life, he, he wrote down. And um, there's, there is some evidence that the Gospel of John was written more by his disciples, because uh, towards the end of the Gospel of John, it says, the one who testifies to these things is true. And so it's possible that it was written more by his disciples uh, that collected his sayings uh, than, than by John himself. John himself may not have been literate. Um, some of the original disciples weren't literate. Anyway, so that's how the New Testament was written. Second century rolls along, and the, the gospel goes forth. And what I mean by that is the New Testament goes forth. The New Testament is copied and copied and copied and copied and copied in staggering proportions. Um... In, like, uh, the Beatles said at one point that they were bigger than Jesus. And that's kind of interesting because for a while, Christianity was like the rage of the Beatles. That people were just copying it and copying it and copying it. And Christianity spread through the Bible and the Bible spread with Christianity. Which is why there was a pastor that, well, there's this rumor that circulates that the first century didn't have the Bible. And they just went with the Holy Spirit. And that is complete buckus. That is nonsense. They they didn't have an organized canon of scriptures, which led to led to trouble, as we're going to see. But wherever they went, they had the Gospels, and they had Paul, and then they had other books. And it was the other books that, was, that caused the trouble and took a long time to figure out which other books to add to it. But, well, no, they had the Old Testament. They had the Gospels, the four Gospels, and they had Paul. There was no disagreement about those ever in in my knowledge there were there was discussion about revelation there was discussion about Hebrews there was discussion about James uh, there was discussion about uh, the writings of Papias there was discussions about um, the shepherd of Hermas uh, some other you know good writings by Christians that were didn't end up making the cut. Um, but there was never any discussion about the Old Testament being included or about the Gospels being, the four Gospels being included or about 
the writings of Paul being included. These were always part of Christian scriptures. And wherever Christians went, they took these scriptures with them. And these were the foundation of their faith. And uh, it was so important to them that Christianity actually had a grassroots huge impact on literacy because so many of the slaves were becoming converted to Christianity and were copying scriptures and you know, grabbing papyrus from everywhere, saving up money to buy papyrus and copying scriptures and copying them and copying them, copying them. And books may have been invented from the Bible because there was such a movement of trying to copy them and make another copy to give to somebody else, make another copy to give to somebody else. And scrolls were cumbersome. And it made sense to put it all together into a book form. And the New Testament made just about a book about the right size. And it it may have been where books were formed. And um, anyways, so that's cool. Um, and this kind of relates back to one question that is important to, to mention is, is the New Testament reliable? And the Da Vinci Code would say, no, you know, it's just evolved and people just added whatever they wanted. It's because of the explosion of Christianity through the scriptures and how the scriptures were translated and well, were, were copied. They weren't translated originally, but they were copied all over. And they went in three distinct directions, down to Egypt and Alexandria, out to out east towards Turkey in that region, and then up north and west into Europe. So there's three distinct regions that they went into. And there's three distinct regions now that we can go back through archaeology and find copies. So people will say, well... There's all sorts of scribal errors. These were just slaves and nobodies that were doing this this copying work. Um, how can we trust it? And also, um, well, there's so many copies and they all have errors in them. So how can we get back to the original? So it's a little bit like this. Imagine, and, and also uh, we don't have the original copies anymore. The original copy is gone. All we have is these copies of copies of copies and the original's gone. Okay. Think of, think of this example. Think of Harry Potter. And Harry Potter has gone out all over the earth and translated into many languages. And, um, you know, I've got a copy of it on my phone. I read it, enjoyed it. Uh, some of you have listened to it as well or, or read it. Um, does it trouble you that the original copy of Harry Potter is gone? Or if it was. I mean, it might still be somewhere on J.K. Rowling's phone or napkins or notebooks or whatever. It shouldn't bother you that the original is gone because there's so many copies of it that it can never be lost. It's it's impossible to lose Harry Potter, <laughs> for better or for worse. It's with us for human history. I mean, even if all the digital copies died and there was a global apocalypse of some sort, archaeologists in the future could find a copy of it buried in the dirt somewhere and figure out what it said you might say well yes but that's that's a perfect copy you know nowadays we have computers and stuff that deal with that what if it was hand copied well if you think about it if all these things were hand copied and scribes made tiny errors because scribes make tiny errors they're trying to they're trying to do right they're trying to copy it correctly legitimately they wouldn't try and copy something if they didn't care about what it said and most scribes aren't copying and saying, I'm going to change something at the same time. They're copying because this is their holy book. It's the most sacred thing they know. And they want to translate it or they want to copy it for somebody else. So they make tiny little errors. They forgot. They forget to type, 
to put an I, you know, dot the I or they, they, they change words slightly. Um, but they do make errors. But the fact that there's so many copies throughout the world, and again, there's three distinct regions where the copies went, so you can compare them back and forth. And if you think about it, you can get some smart people together and they can figure out what the original would have been behind all these copies. And uh, Jay Warner Wallace said it's a little bit like um, sending somebody a text and you, you write a typo in it. You know, I'm going to be there at 5 o'clock. Instead of writing 5 o'clock, you write something weird. Um, you write 10 o'clock. And then you're like, oh, shoot, I wrote that wrong. And so you say, oh, sorry, I will be a hair at 5 o'clock. And then you're like, oh, I made a mistake. And then you say, write another text and you say, um, Bobby will be there at 5 o'clock. You know, you can make like six or seven texts with typos in them all in different places. And anybody can look at that text and say, well, I know exactly what the original, what he was trying to say even if I don't even have one single text that is correct. Now, in the case of the scriptures, we have many, many texts that are correct, that, are, that all agree. And then there will be one off in Egypt, one copy that is wrong, or that is different. And so we say, well, clear that that's wrong. Also, things tend to grow over time. P- people tend to add a word to make the, the sentence less clumsy, to, to format it to new linguistic conventions. Things don't shrink over time, they grow. So if there's a, a word or a phrase added over in Istanbul uh, at some point, then we can we can notice that because we have copies from Alexandria, we have copies from from Europe. So through this, this this is the study of of uh, text criticism, and through text criticism, we can get back to knowing exactly what the original autograph was with absolute certainty. Like there, there is not doubt, there is absolute certainty what the New Testament said. Now, that being said, if you buy a good Bible like I've been using for the last 15 years, it, it will have notes in the bottom and say, some manuscripts say this, some manuscripts say this, some manuscripts say this. And if you read those notes, you see, okay, this is a real book that was translated by real people. And, you know, somewhere along the way, somebody made a mistake. And this is the mistake. But the, the version in the text is the correct version, but you might have been using the King James Bible, which was less accurate, and it might have had this version. Or, in some cases, there is some genuine confusion uh, about whether it said this or whether it said that on this minor, slight linguistic point. So, again, I talked about that in the apologetics class, but I just wanted to mention that to say we have the New Testament, we have the autographs, we are not in doubt or in question about what the New Testament said. Now, compare that to the Gospel of Thomas. Now, the Gospel of Thomas was part of a collection of books often called Gnostic Gospels. And they're called that because uh, if you listen to my podcast on intertestamental, uh, on the silent years, I talk about um, what was going on in the Greek world during the silent years. I also have podcasts on Plato uh, and on, uh, well, a great podcast would be um, Plotinus and his influence on Augustine, uh, because Plotinus is going to be similar in a lot of ways to Gnosticism. Not going to go deep into Gnosticism, except to say that it was a Greek movement. Um, Plato came helped develop philosophy, and he understood the, the world, the material world is being bad, and the spirit is being good. 
And he used that to help understand, you know, math and science and, and ideas. And people after him used those ideas to create religious sorts of ideas. And one of those religious sorts of ideas was Gnosticism. Another one was Neoplatonism, uh, which came from Plotinus and influenced Augustine and came to have some influence on the later Christian church up to our day. And those are important things to know about. Um, but Gnostics saw the world as bad. They wanted to escape from matter. They wanted to ascend into the world of the spirit. And the way that they thought they could ascend to the world of the spirit was through secret knowledge. And so they were always trying to find out more about this secret knowledge. And um, the main sorts of secret knowledge that they needed to have was that between God, who was really far removed, and us in this material world, there were secret levels of ascension and you need to know about these secret levels of ascension to rise through these these pathways it's very similar to the modern day uh, religion of scientology if you know anything about that um and so this you know this was in the water this was being developed they, there were people that believed these things and then christianity comes on the scene and it just explodes and everybody's talking about it and it's the sort of thing that on in public people aren't talking about it very much but then in the locker room, people are talking about it and the slaves are all talking about it and the kids are talking about it. And, and where do you hear about it? Oh, so-and-so told me about it. And like, it's, it's a grassroots thing. It's catching on like wildfire. Everybody's copying scriptures. Everybody's, it's just everywhere. And so Gnosticism capitalizes on this and it uses Christianity to, you know, as every religion has done, since the coming of Christ, just about every religion that has ever come in contact with Christ, they find Christ so arresting, so interesting, so unforgettable, that he changes their religion. And Jesus changed the Gnostic religion. He actually changed the, the Greek and pagan religions. And people that are clumsy when they study Jesus and, and pagan religions don't take time to notice what things happened after Christ and what things happened before Christ. We'll talk about this in a second. But the alleged similarities between Jesus and some of the pagan religions happened because when they met Jesus, these religions changed to be like Jesus. Because that is the way of the human soul, is to become like Jesus. Okay, so Gnosticism came along, saw Christianity as a huge grassroots movement, and it wrote various books of secret knowledge. And... It put their words of secret knowledge into the words of Christ. And these books are clearly understood as being written in the second century. I mean, you know, 150 on, or, you know, like 100, 110, 120, 130. That's the second century. The third, third century and even the fourth century. And these books were never really popular. I, I say that for at least two reasons. One, they weren't really mentioned in the Church Fathers. Well, for one, we don't really have copies. Uh, we only found copies when, through archaeology, we found a few scraps. And then at the Neg Hamadi, I'm not sure how to pronounce it, Neg Hamadi find, they found a full Gospel of Thomas and scraps of a bunch of others. And that's the only copy of most of them. So like one copy. Versus scriptures that have like thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of copies. Uh, many and 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 the Nag Hammadi was from much later as well, and most of the scripture. I mean, 
the Gospel of John, the, the oldest fragment of the Gospel of John, was only from about 30 years after it was actually written. Very, very close. All right. So we don't have many copies. That means it wasn't very popular. It, we only have copies in Egypt, which means it wasn't part of the original um, Christian message. All the other scriptures went all the places. All the places that Christianity went, all the scriptures went. But, and that was part of the criteria of how the early Christians, as they were sorting through, should we include this book, should we not include this book? They were always comparing them to the Gospels and to Matthew. I mean, to the Gospels and Paul. And they said, look, the Gospels and Paul, everywhere that there's Christians, there's the Gospels and Paul. But everywhere that there's Christians, they don't necessarily have the writings of Papias. Or they don't necessarily have the Shepherd of Hermas. So these are great books. They agree with Christian doctrine, but you know it, it wasn't part of the original message, so it's not included in scriptures. And the Gospel of Thomas never made it out of Egypt. It never made it out of out of Alexandria, really, uh, or out of that that region. So it was never read very widely. It was a very local thing, and uh, it wasn't even. It didn't really even gather the attention of the early church fathers. They never really wrote about it. Uh, there was one mention in, um, there's one or two mentions in the Church Fathers. I know a fair bit about them because I've read most of them for a, a project in school. And yeah, it was just mentioned. Also, these are some books that um, that do not agree with our doctrine and they're just mentioned. Now, you might say, well, why, why does that matter? Uh, why would they talk about books they don't agree with? For one thing, this is not this has nothing to do with the early with the Council of Nicaea. The Council of Nicaea happened, you know, three hundred and twenty three A.D. Or when did it happen? It happened after that. That's the uh, Edict of Milan, which is when Christianity became a legitimate religion. Uh, is three twenty three? Uh, but uh, the Council of Nicaea happened just a few years after that. I forget exactly when. Um, but this is happening like in the in the second century that Christians are identifying which books are legitimate, which ones aren't. And these are, again, grassroots people. These are Christians. These are people that are being persecuted. They have to replace the, their bishops every two to three years because they get killed, they get thrown to the lions, they get captured. These are the real deal. And they're trying to figure out, this is the book that we are building our life on, which books are included and which ones aren't. And they're finding that there are some great books written by great Christian people some of them have access to a real disciple or the disciple of a disciple, second or third generation, uh, and they're writing awesome books, but they're just not quite included. And so that's what the discussion is. Um, and then there's a lot of her heretical movements that are capitalizing on Christianity that are seeing that momentum and saying, we, wanna, we want in on this, we want to capitalize on this. Like Gnosticism, uh, there were other movements as well. One of them was Marcionism. Uh, Marcion rejected a lot of the New Testament and wrote some of his own. Uh, there were the Ebionites, there was the Docetics, there was a bunch of different movements. Um, and Christians took a lot of time to write out um, what is false doctrine and what is true doctrine during this time. These are Christians that are putting it all on the line, that are sacrificing, they're not oppressing anybody. They're trying to figure out what is true doctrine. And many of them have a direct access to one of the original apostles because that was one of the criterion of how you could be a bishop at the time was you needed to be appointed by somebody who had been appointed by somebody that was one of the original apostles. 
Um, and so one of these writers was Irenaeus, and he wrote a book, a very large book. I have it on my shelf. I read it. It's thick, like it's about an inch thick. And it's called Against Heresies. And he writes about uh, the Gnostic faith uh, and, and all their secret knowledge. And he exposes it. And I don't know how he founded all this information, but he exposes all their secret knowledge that supposedly only they have and it's kept for them. And, you know, you have to become part of their religion to have this secret knowledge. And he just exposes it all. And he says, this is garbage. It's not true. It takes all the time to write that. Um, a little bit later, uh, Origen writes a book against Celsus. This is uh, more in the second century now. And Celsus was a writer that wrote a kind of a short pamphlet against Christianity, but he was an educated Greek man that wrote um, why Christianity was wrong and why it was bad for the empire. And Celsus, or Origen writes, again, like a huge book, like half an inch thick, more, maybe, maybe a full inch thick, you know, of real big pages, against Celsus. And again, for both of these people, the only reason that we know about the Gnostics that Irenaeus was writing about, historically speaking, the only reason we know about them is because Irenaeus wrote about them, and he wrote a lot. So clearly that was important at the time, these Gnostic ideas. Um, and Celsus, the only reason we know about Celsus, Celsus's book was not widely published. Uh, we wouldn't know about it today, except that Origen wrote a huge book about it. He thought it was important. He wrote a book about it. Nobody wrote against the Gospel of Thomas. It wasn't an issue. It was never included in a list of books to be considered as part of the canon. Nobody proposed it. It wasn't copied widely. The The general Christian population didn't think it was worthy of copying. Um, it was never discovered anywhere except Egypt. Um, it, it was just this little book that happened to be found by archaeology. That's it. That's why this stupid thing is popular is because... It happened to be found. And, um, you know, the the um, the Da Vinci Code makes it sound as though the Gospel of Thomas contains pagan ideas. Pagan ideas were certainly around at the time, but they're not in the Gospel of Thomas because, again, the Gospel of Thomas is a Gnostic book that believes that spirit is good and matter is bad. So, um, it one, one of the surprising things in the gospel of thomas is that towards the end uh some of the woman followers of jesus say uh, we want to go to heaven too and jesus says don't worry i've made a special provision to you, for you after death you will be changed to men and then you can go to heaven too and this is a clear indication of or it's a clear echo of the greek thinking of the time that men are more intellectual intellect is spirit spirit is good women are more emotional emotions are fleshly flesh is part of the world which is bad this is gnosticism this is not the greek or this is not the jewish way of thinking thing of things jews believe that men and women were made in the image of god and both were good um and there's many 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 things in the gnostic gospels that show that uh they're very it's a greek idea it's not a jewish idea it did not come from from judaism and again, it was never widely published. And these are not the words of Jesus. It's Sorry, okay. And also, it's derivative, which means they're, it's quoting from, from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then adding to it. And the way that it's quoting from them, you can tell that it's shortening things, that it's, it knows that the audience has already read the four canonical Gospels. And it's quoting them 
but changing it slightly or abbreviating them because it knows it knows like the author knows you've already read it uh, and it's a um it uses the formula of a secret writing uh it, it you know it, it claims to be written by thomas and they always say that jesus had some secret information that he gave to one of his favorite disciples and now that disciple is make, has written a book and he hid it away and now we found this book and so uh they've actually they came actually came up with a name with, for this called apocrypha and apocrypha means hidden writing because there were so many of these writings coming up in the 2nd and 3rd and 4th century that people were saying they were writing a new book and saying very conveniently oh yeah well jesus said this but he said not to tell anybody and he gave it to his favorite disciple and his favorite disciple hid it somewhere and i'm the one that found it maybe there was a revelation or something you know an angel showed me where to dig and now i found it so the gospel of thomas has all these strokes against it um which is why it's it's not considered by anybody to contribute to jesus studies virtually nobody looks at the gospel of thomas and says we need to add this to jesus studies and this is going to give us more information this this tells us about what was happening in the second and third centuries in the second and third centuries there were some real challenges to christianity uh christianity almost became basically part of the greek religion uh, it almost became overwhelmed by by greek thought uh greek philosophy especially and there were some real challenges uh and christians fought hard to to keep you know the the orthodox faith in in the face of of greek ideas and i talk about that in uh, the podcast on augustine and plotinus as well as the podcast on uh, philosophy and theology if you go back in my podcast history um but this is not telling us about what happened in in uh, at the time of christ in the in the first century um i've been saying that wrong what i meant to say the first century i said the second century sometimes ah, it's early in the morning okay so the gospel of thomas is interesting for understanding what was happening in the second and third century but it doesn't help us with what was happening in the first century and peterson is wrong to quote from it as the words of jesus i hope that you caught that from all everything i said it's it's just it's like, okay, if you think about Harry Potter, you know, and it's like the number one read book in the world, not including religious books. And it's everywhere, right? And then little old me writes a book. And it's, you know, people in my hometown like it, people in my family like it. And, you know, it's a nice book. And 2000 years from now, People find thousands of copies of Harry Potter as they're digging around in the dirt and whatever. And then they also find my book. And they're like, hey, these two are kind of similar. Whoa, he's got the same kind of characters. And let's just say I plagiarized Harry Potter like crazy and hoped that people wouldn't notice. Came up with some sort of story about it. And But there's only like two copies, one of which is incomplete, and they found one copy of my book. But there's like thousands of copies of Harry Potter and they clearly come from before. Anybody should be able to tell, look, this is it. We just happened to find Josiah's crazy little book that he plagiarized from Harry Potter. But it's not important. You know, it, it didn't come from the original area. It wasn't distributed um, in all these ways. Anyways, kind of, I think we've, we've uh, beat up on uh, 
Gospel of Thomas enough. In fact, I think it might be time to go for breakfast. So I should probably wrap this up and then we'll do a part two where we talk about um, pagan Christianity. And I want to talk about archetypes a bit. So stay tuned for part number two coming up. Hello and welcome back to the No Longer Be Children podcast. I'm your host, Josiah Meyer, and we are in pursuit of a mature and stable Christian worldview. And we're continuing to talk about um, some questions I have with three different quotes from Jordan Peterson on um, on the historical Jesus. And uh, it seems as though he's out of touch with the research and uh, perhaps is influenced by the garbage surrounding um, the Da Vinci Code or you know, some of the, there's been a string of conspiracy theory type books predating the Da Vinci Code. In fact, the Da Vinci Code was sued for plagiarism of bread in the stone, I think, or something like that. There was another book that basically spouted the same thing, but never got really popular. Um, And again, it's just kind of recycling the same nonsense from, or the same, you know, people were really trying to figure things out a hundred years ago. And I mean, I can give them some credibility as scholars 100 years ago because they didn't know any better. Um, But these ideas have been circulating since, and it's the only reason that they keep getting circulated is because people say it's a conspiracy. And they need to say it's a conspiracy because the Christians don't agree with it, and the secular people don't agree with it. And nobody agrees with it that, um, you know, these ideas of... Well, let's look at these ideas. Um... Peterson said that um, we could look at a different example, which is less mythologized and less archetypal than the example of Jesus. And I want to leave archetype for for later. I might even have a totally different podcast on archetypes. Um, But mythologized. Now, mythology is something we know an awful lot about. Um, We know what a myth is. For example, let's take Hercules. Now, Hercules might have been a real historical person, but um, his story became larger than life. Well, here's an example. Uh, Canadians really like Terry Fox. We just drove past the Terry Fox monument yesterday. Terry Fox is somebody that um, in the 70s, late 70s, I think, um, was dying of cancer. And he was a Canadian guy. And instead of just lying down, instead of just whining about it, he said, I'm going to make a difference. And so he decided to run across Canada to raise awareness for cancer and to raise money for cancer research. And um, then he had a setback. He had His leg needed to be amputated. So he got a prosthetic leg. And then he kept doing it. He kept running. And Canada is a big place. I don't know if you know this, but it's a big place. And uh, the, he started in the east. He dipped his, his foot in the in the ocean. Um, the Atlantic. I think that's the Atlantic Ocean. And he ran all the way across the maritime provinces and across Quebec and across most of Ontario. And he had some real health issues. And finally, he, he had to go to the hospital and he died. And... Um, he absolutely united Canada behind him and like, what is it like, uh, it's almost 40 years since he died. He died before I was born. And every time I tell his story, like I want to cry because I'm like, that's what it's about. You know, if, 
It's not just if life throws you lemons, you make lemonade. But if life throws you lemons, you make lemonade for somebody else. That's what life's about. And if you're dying of cancer, you strap on a piece of metal and you run across Canada to try and help somebody else. That's what it's about. And that's what Jesus got. And that's what Jesus, that's part of what Jesus was telling us. And that's what Jordan Peterson gets. It's not only about that. It's also about, you know, salvation in Jesus Christ. But um, there's something about that story that connects deeply to all of us, I think. Um, and uh, anyway, so that story, like the person behind, there was a real person that had foibles and had annoying things and farted it and made jokes that nobody laughed at and, and all the things that normal human pe- people do. But now his story has become, like his life has become a story that I can tell briefly like that. And then that story, you know, through the years will become more of a story that can be be told briefly like that. And, you know, back in the day, they had less of a way of measuring dates and measuring, you know, the hard facts of, of people's lives. And so somebody's life like Hercules, who knows what he actually did if he did something great for his village or something. But likely there was somebody back there that did something amazing. But through time, his life got more and more incredible until he became, you know, basically divinized or, or one with the gods. And these stories evolve and these stories grow and, and that's how myths happen. And mythology was very important to the Greek people. Uh, the major collections of mythology were written by Homer at, um, I think it was around a 1,000 bc 800 or a thousand bc quite quite a long time ago um and uh, he wrote down a collection of of myths and these stories were uh, part of what uh helped the greek people understand how to live life um yeah maybe i need to talk talk about archetype at this point i wanted to save it for later but so an archetype is uh, a concept, I think, developed by Carl Jung, although the concept might be earlier, I'm not sure, but Carl Jung definitely talked a lot about archetypes. And as we talk about these stories, you know, many t- everybody tells stories. I tell stories to my kids all the time, make up stories, tell stories I've heard, um, and we all do that. But there's some stories that really stay with us and stick with us and go deep and make us think deeply about what it means to be human and really work uh, as stories and as ways of organizing our lives. And so there would be, yeah, I'm not going to go deep into this because it's going to take way too much time. We'll we'll come back to archetype. Okay. But um, there's these myths and myths grow. And um, this is how the Greeks, you know, figured out their life was through these myths. Now, as I said, uh, the first quest for the historical Jesus saw Jesus basically as a myth. And many people saw him as an evolution of the earlier Greek myths because they knew a lot about the Greek myths. Um, The Western culture, you know, up till recently, and even myself, I read Homer, Homer's The Iliad and the Odyssey in high school. They probably don't read that anymore because Homer was an old white guy and whatever this nonsense is. But that is our heritage and culture is Greek mythology. 
and uh, many of our sayings uh, come from Greek mythology, and many of our ideas come from that. And so people knew Greek mythology and they knew scriptures, and they said, well, you know, the two grew up close together, um, geographically speaking, so maybe Jesus just kind of grew out of that idea. And maybe Jesus didn't even exist. Maybe people just kept telling stories until they came up with Jesus. Um, and there's, uh, is it Hegel, I think, uh, is the historian that organized all of history into an evolutionary model that he saw things as evolving and getting better and better and better all the way up to Christianity and then all the way up to uh, German the German version of Christianity and all the way up to the Aryan race and look at us, we're the best version of humanity there ever will be, so you all need to die. Uh, yay, Hegel. I might have the wrong historian there. You don't, don't critique the wrong one. But um, anyway, so that's the evolutionary idea of, of history. And along with that, you know, mythology, and this is how myths grow. And those ideas were definitely out there in the first quest of the historical Jesus. What happened, though, as we had more data from archaeology and then better tools from the second and third quests from the historical Jesus, we realized a few things. One of them is that actually we have the order backwards because Paul is more clear about the divinity of Jesus than even the Gospels are. And he wrote first. He was extremely clear that we are saved through Jesus Christ, that, you know, Philippians 2 also uh, was written. It's one of the earlier books that Paul wrote, um, and it's extremely clear. Jesus, who, although he appeared in the, uh, although he exists in, in the, okay, have the statute in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, although being in the very form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being made in the appearance of man, he humbles himself still more by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and appointed him, gave him a name which is above all names, so that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every name and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Philippians 2, uh, 4 to 11. Messed up a few words in there, but that's the gist of it. So, you know, you don't get much higher than that for Christology. You don't much, get much clearer than that, that Jesus existed before he was a man, uh, that he came to earth, that he took on the form of humanity, that he suffered and died for us, that he was resurrected after he died that everybody's going to worship Jesus and that we're saved through Jesus' sacrifice. That is that is the Christian message. There's nothing to... There's no room for evolution here. There's no room for mythology. There's no room for growth here. And again, 1 Corinthians 15 has the same message in a nutshell. And that, again, is even earlier and very clearly predates even the writing of Paul. So they're realizing... I mean, anybody that's honest about it has to realize that there isn't room for mythologizing. Mythologizing takes hundreds and hundreds and perhaps thousands of years. We don't know how old some of these myths are before, you know, Homer wrote them down. We don't know how many, like some of these stories could have been told for thousands of years. We don't know. It takes a long time to forget somebody like Terry Fox and to have just a myth about, you know, some some god flying through the heaven or something 
it, it takes a long time. The original people that know about it have to die and then their children have to die and, you know, on and on and on. So like 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, it's not enough time. That's the time of history. And um, so that's one problem. The other problem is that um, we have multiple streams of information about Jesus. You know, Matthew was a different writer. Mark was a different writer. Paul was a different writer. These people were all spread all over the empire and writing the same thing. So there's just not enough time. And the it, I find it so weird that he says uh, Socrates is a less mythologized just need to take a moment to laugh about this. Socrates is a less mythologized figure than Jesus. Like, there's serious debate about whether Socrates even lived. Like, people debated whether Jesus lived 100 years ago, but now nobody does. But Socrates, there's serious debate because he's so mythologized. Because the only thing you hear about him is... 100% positive and it doesn't really seem believable that he was so perfect and that he was so smart and that he was so good and that everything he said was so eloquent and that when he died he did so with such poise and such grace and I mean maybe he did maybe he did but it's it's just a little bit too perfect to be true and the only real good source that we have on Socrates is from Plato and it seems pretty clear that as Plato is writing about Socrates, um, Plato puts his own ideas into the mouth of Socrates and changes it. And since there's nobody else really writing about Socrates, there's no way of critiquing this. And um, so the only works about Socrates come out around like 100 years after he died. And the only extant copies of those are hundreds and hundreds of years after that the only manuscripts that we found through archaeology um anyways there i mean it doesn't really matter socrates is not it doesn't really matter whether he lived or not it doesn't really matter the facts of his life but it's just funny to me that peterson thinks that socrates is a less mythologized person because well just because jesus has been studied a lot and we know a lot about his life. And there are fixed data points about his life. And there's no debate about certain fixed data points. All the debate is about how to interpret these data points. And who the quote-unquote real Jesus actually was. And um, the concept of myth. People, people throw this around. And C.S. Lewis mentioned this uh, you know, 50 years ago or something. And it's worth taking into note because C.S. Lewis was a scholar of um, of myth, you know, and, and of antiquity, uh, of medieval myths, and and ancient Greek myths as well. And he said, "I wish people would understand when they say that Jesus is a myth, that they're appealing to a real thing. Like a myth is a real thing. When you say something is a myth, that that's a genre." There is such a thing as the, the the genre of myth. And people say, well, Jesus is a myth without thinking about what a myth is. And it's it seems like, like Peterson has embarrassingly evoked the genre of myth without knowing what a myth is, without understanding that Jesus is a historical person, without understanding that he is a much debated but well-established historical person. Um, there was not enough time for a myth to develop. Uh, his story doesn't contain the elements that are normally contained within a myth, especially when you look at the Gospel of Mark or the writings of Paul. It's just basic, unornamented 
you know, Jesus went here, he said this, he died then, then his tomb was empty, some woman found it, they were scared, the end. You know, it's it's not ornamented, it's not, it doesn't look like a myth, it doesn't read like a myth. Um, and it doesn't have the historical qualifications of a myth. All right, we're going to talk about archetype in a future podcast because it would take up too much time. Um, and the story of Socrates, I mean, it'd be interesting to do a paper sometime on this but and really research it. But it's just an interesting comparison because the story of Socrates has all the components of a myth. It's flowery. It's well-written. It's... Um, it's filled with, with theological, um, uh, like everything that happens happens because of some reason. Because of, of well, I guess you could say that about about Jesus. But like in the Gospel of Mark, it's it's so bare. There's no explanation for why things happen. It's just this is what happened. And the story of, of how Socrates died is this... I mean, Socrates dying, it's it's a fairly short thing. You know, that somebody came, gave him poison, and he said, all right, he drank the poison, and he died. But it's this huge book. And it's all about the things that he said. And, and then he, he went to this part of the house, and then he said a different discourse, and then he came here, and then he philosophized about how he was going to die. And then he had a conversation with this person, uh, you know, which is kind of like a modern day you know version of this thought and then he he debated with this thought and then he debated with this thought and then and then he people wept over him and then he did this and it's this long flowery story about the end of Socrates' life which very much looks like a mythologized elaborate account um and so it's an interesting comparison because the gospel of mark doesn't read like that uh, at all okay Last thing to say is um, Horace is historically and archetypically considered a predecessor of Christ. This again is from the, his first quest from the historical Jesus. And people are like, you know, people were just deciphering uh, Egyptian hieroglyphs. That was all the rage. It was amazing. You know, all the writings of ancient Egypt were becoming known to the people through the Rosetta Stone. Um, again, this is very, very, very recent. It's only like in the last hundred years that we've been able to read hieroglyphics. And people thought, well, you know, these stories are kind of similar. Maybe, maybe Horace became something, you know, from the Persian gods. And then it became, it entered into Hebrew religion and then became Jesus. It, it's just, it didn't happen that way. It didn't happen that way. I mean, for one thing, the Jews left Egypt. And then Egypt, you know, it had a strong influence for many years um, during the times of the kings. But then Egypt really stopped having any sort of international power. Uh, And then it was Syria up to the northwest. And then it was Babylon to the northeast that really had global dominance. And then Israel was captured and taken all the way over to Babylon and uh, that was around 500 BC. And then that's really when the Jewish identity was forged as they were a captive people and they were trying to get back to their land. And then eventually they were brought back to their land. They established a temple. Then they were faithful to their God and they, they copied and recopied their scriptures. And and they, from that point on, were always fighting against the influence of um, the Greek 
religion especially uh pushing into their their culture and they were they were like no we were captive people we're back in our homeland this is our faith we're sticking to it and some people compromised with greek religion and some people didn't uh, but the faithful Jews, you know, dug in their heels and said, we are Jews and this is our religion. And and there you go. And that was really the story of the Maccabees. And that was the story of the, the silent years. I've got podcasts on that. Up to the time of Jesus and the Pharisees were the, the conservative people that were like, we are Jews. We are sticking to our scriptures. Uh, we are back in our land and we are we are fighting to have independence like we had back in the day of David. And we don't even remember who Horus was. <laughs> like, we have no idea who Horus was. Like, no idea. <laughs> that was so 1,000 years ago. Um, like, it, it's just historically a little bit preposterous. They were really interested in the influence of Greek thought pushing in on them and saying no to it. Like, that was the enemy. You know, it's a little bit like saying, well, you know, there's there's American television in Saudi Arabia, so basically America is an influence on on Islam. No, it's not. There might, well, actually, I'm not even sure if there's American television in Saudi Arabia. But anyways, like, cultures can be diametrically opposed to each other, and they can live right next to each other, and that doesn't mean anything if they're diametrically opposed. And this is the way it was. The Jews, and especially the Pharisees, were diametrically opposed to Greek thought because this was another way that they were going to lose their heritage and their culture. And ancient Egyptian thought just did not even come into the equation at all. And Jesus came on the scene with a radical new... um, Like, it grew out of the Pharisaical religion because the Pharisees believed in, in God... They believed in heaven and hell, and they believed in an afterlife, and they believed in a resurrection of the body. Jew- Greeks did not believe in a resurrection of the body. They believed in a resurrection of the spirit, but Jews believed in the resurrection of the body. And Jesus said, I am going to rise before the end of time. And that was new. Nobody was expecting this. Nobody was predicting this. But when it happened, everybody understood that Jesus had bodily ris- risen from the dead, and then his body and him went up to heaven. That's what the Jews understood. Greeks would not have understood that. It would have made no sense to them whatsoever. And I don't even know what, what, um, I don't even know what the Egyptians would have thought about that because I'm not as up on Egyptian thought. And the reason I'm not up on it is because it just wasn't really part of the picture. The way that Egyptian thought entered into the picture was, you know, during this time, uh, the time of you know the the first and second century when Christianity was taking off, was you would have these little cult religions, the cult of Osiris, the cult of Horus, and they would be these little closet affairs where um, you would go there and 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 it would be like this really ancient religion, and they would whisper about how there's this old god Horus, and and if you lay under this grate, then we'll, we'll slaughter an ox and the blood will fall on you and then you will be, you know, initiated into the rites of this ancient god of Egypt, you know. And, and there was that thing, there was some hunger for these old ways um, as the Greek, you know, it, it was out there. 
But it wasn't a strong force. It was barely legal. Some of these cults weren't legal in the in the Greek world because they were so weird. Um, and it was never a mainstream force like Greek philosophy, like Greek uh, literature, and like Christianity. And so um, considered... Okay, so the first his, the first quest for the historical Jesus made these grand claims that, well, you know, Egypt led to... You know, this God, well, a few hundred years later, then it became Jesus. Not having any idea of the historical complexity of that and not having any idea of, of how things actually worked. And also, um, like, it's so ridiculous. and It keeps coming up. And, you know, apologists like William Lane Craig often have to answer this. And you can look on, on YouTube and, and hear some of his answers and you know, it's helpful because this sort of nonsense keeps getting spouted over and over and over um, on Discovery Channel and HBO specials and Netflix and stuff. The reason that the historic... Like, um, I heard William Lane Craig say this, and I, I've heard others say it as well. Like, you need to explain why such bad scholarship perpetuated. Because after this the first quest of the historical Jesus, there was a second quest. And one of the main components of that was what they called the Jewish reclamation of Jesus. Well, why did Jesus need to be reclaimed as Jewish? Everybody should know that Jesus was a Jew. But the first quest tended to see him as a Greek. Well, that's ridiculous. Why would you see Jesus as a Greek? Well, who were these people? Where were these people in time? The first quest of the historical Jesus first quest for the historical Jesus happened in Germany between around 1880 and 1920 to 1930 in Germany. What was happening in Germany during that time? Well, that was leading up to the Nazi era. That was the time of anti-Semitism reached its climax. And this was the time when scholarship, real scholars, you know, people in academia, people in universities, people with doctorates and stuff, um, really, 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 really hated the Jewish people. And they wanted to call themselves Christians. And they were finding a way to say, well, Jesus really wasn't a Jew. He was really a Greek person. He was really a Western person. He wasn't really a Jew. And that is really what gave fuel to a lot of the... It seems as though that's what gave fuel to a lot of this sort of thinking, that um, Jesus was basically just a pagan... Um, Jesus, the idea of Jesus grew out of other ideas, uh, and, um, and not out of Judaism, because this is not how you understand a people. You don't see two people to two people groups together. We have lots of people groups together today, just as they did in the ancient Greek world. You know, you have people from Armenia right next to people from, I don't know, from India. You know, and they're living in the same neighborhood. You don't say, oh, well, the reason that the people from India believe in Vishnu is because they're living so close to the people from, from Armenia who have Christian beliefs, and they're, they're kind of similar. That's not how ideas transfer. They don't transfer through geographical proximity. They don't even transfer, I mean, even if, yeah, that's not how ideas happen. Ideas transfer through cultures and cultures are transmitted through religions and through religious systems and through families and through through parents and and through sacred writings and so 
if you want to understand Jesus, you need to understand the Jewish religion. And this is what serious historical Jesus scholars do today, is they look at the Jewish religion, and they look at Christianity, and then they look at and try and figure out who the historical Jesus was. And again, there's plenty of debate about that. And you can listen to other podcasts on that. But what I want to make extremely clear is that it is absolute garbage, nonsense, nonsense. (laughs) I almost swore. When I talk with my wife, sometimes I swear because it feels cool. Not real swears, you know, but like there's other words for crap that like, you're just talking about poop. You can say other words. Anyways, it, it is absolute poop to talk about Jesus as evolving from Horus. Historically, there is no connection. Um, archetype, we'll talk about that in a second uh, or sometime in a later podcast. But there is no connection between ancient Egypt and um, and Jesus living in in 30 years after Christ or 80. There is no connection. There's absolutely no connection. Um, Jesus is not more mythologized than Socrates. It's rubbish. (laughs) It is rubbish. We know so much about Jesus. We have so much information about Jesus. It might be debated. Yes, it is debated. We have huge debates. You know, invite me to your podcast. I will debate you. And I will bring research. And I will bring facts. And... You know, I I will admit that academically speaking, there are some gray areas. I will admit that. But we need to talk about the facts, guys. Because after 150 years of researching Jesus and serious research, I mean, Socrates has never gotten, I don't think he's gotten the same kind of attention that Jesus has. Nobody has been researched the way Jesus has been researched, and for good reason. After 150 years of the most, you know, thorough and laser sharp scrutiny Jesus has been researched we know who that guy is or at at least we have so much information about him you can't say it was just a myth you can't make these these sloppy comparisons to oh yeah he grew out of Horus and whatever Um, and you can't make quotes from the Gospel of Thomas as though that's what Jesus said because nobody believes that even people that 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 are really interested in the Gospel of Thomas would still say that it's a second, second, second century document, third, second, third century document, which will tell us about Christians, and they'll say yes, and and some of these Christians were also alive in the first century, and perhaps were even influenced by Jesus. Well, maybe, but it's that's a pretty long stretch. Nobody believes that that the Gospel of Thomas actually contains the words of Christ. All right, so Jordan Peterson, you disappoint me when you talk about Jesus studies. I love what you say about a lot of things, but you have disappointed me when it comes to Jesus studies. And this has been a fire hose of information. It's been a little bit a little bit quick and ready. I do want to refer you to uh, the podcast where I've done this a little bit more thoroughly. Again, I've talked about liberalism. So you can go to my podcast, Modernity and the Roots of Cla- Classical Liberalism. And you can look at J. Gresham Mason, the man who wrote Christianity and Liberalism. That will tell you about those German scholars in the, ni- in the 1850s up to the 1920s or so. And those people that were actually studying Jesus and laying the foundation for academia today and for the Jesus studies today. So you can do that. I've got podcasts on uh, Plato, 
and Socrates, and then um, some of the philosophers before and after him. So you can go listen to that. I've got podcasts on the silent years, so you can listen to what was going on between the time when the Jews got back to their their hometown and they rebuilt the walls and rebuilt the city, and then you know there aren't scriptures written between Nehemiah and um, and Matthew. Silent years, you can go listen to that. I've got about four or five podcasts in a row. I've got podcasts on philosophy and theology, where uh, and that's basically talking about the tension between Greek thought, not Egyptian thought. Egyptian thought did not have any influence. But Greek thought... By the way, Greek thought was more important in Alexandria, Egypt, than Egyptian thought was. Alexandria held the library of the world, and it was um, the intellectual heart of the, of the Greek world. And what grew out of Alexandria was Neoplatonism. It was not some sort of a revival of Egyptian thought because Egyptian thought was not powerful enough to propel the world into the next chapter. Egyptian thought was interesting. It was cool. It's fun to read. We're really excited about it because we've only been reading about it for 100 years. But it's a bunch of fun stories, guys. It's, it's, it's not Greek philosophy. It's it's not. <laughs> oh, anyways, moving on. Um, so you can listen to podcasts on Plotinus if you want to hear about what was actually happening in Egypt um, in the in the hundred in the two hundred years after Christ. You can listen to the podcast on Plotinus and Neoplatonism, and then you can listen to the podcast on Augustine, where you can find out how. Um, thoughts from Egypt actually impacted Christianity and um, how those thoughts are actually still with us today and um, some ways that we can understand and, and, and deal with that and cope with that. Um, was there anything else that this intersects with? Um, some resources outside of mine. Uh, if you look at um, Zeitgeist, it, that's a German word. If you Google it, massacre it google will figure it out uh there's an old video zeitgeist that is another conspiracy theory video and it recycles garbage from the first quest for the historical jesus and there's some people that have done some really great refuse refutations of that william lane craig has so if you type zeitgeist william lane craig you'll find that bruxy cavey was a pastor that i listened to 10 years ago did a great great job uh debunking zeitgeist uh, and there's been many more. And that will give you kind of a quick and ready, you know, synopsis of the things that I've I've mentioned here today. So, um, hope that uh, this podcast has been helpful to you. It feels good to podcast again. Um, it always surprises me that people listen to these because, um, no, it doesn't. It's It's been good. Uh, covered a lot of ground. Uh, it, it's, it's coming too fast and too furious for a lot of people, but I think that, uh, if it's, if it's up your alley, if you're able to track with it, that, uh, this is going to be really helpful information for you. So I hope that you, uh, enjoy it. And sometime in the future, I do want to try and have a podcast on, um, archetypes because I think that is an interesting concept and it is interesting that the Jesus story has so many points of similarities to so many interesting stories throughout history. And that is something that's worth looking at. So uh, we're going to look at that sometime in the future. All right, God bless. Bye.